of the Lord, and then come and be prepared to hear the word of the Lord. And so as you remain standing, I'm going to read for you from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5, and, and let me share with you where we are. Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica, these people that he loves and that he misses, and, and we're gonna, he's going to show us what he did because of his, his longing to know how they are. Verse 1, here's what he says. He says, therefore, when we could bear it no longer. We were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith. That no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain." Now we're going to stop there and have a seat. And those five verses, that's where we're going to land. We're going to pull those verses apart and understand what Paul is describing in his relationship with the church in Thessalonica. And we're going to see really how he's describing how we as believers, how we live. But, but I want to set things up by asking you a question. And, and here, here's the deal. You got to be honest with me, okay? Honest answer, show of hands, right? No cheating, no lying. Who in this room, who either went to the gym or worked out this week? Let's see, show of hands, okay? A few of you, okay. Well, how about this? Who in this room either went to the gym or worked out this month? Okay, I see a few more hands. How about this, how about this? Who in this room either went to the gym or worked out in the last decade? Man, you guys are so fit. You guys are, look at you guys. You're just so strong and you're working on your card. I'm so proud of you. No, but, but I ask you this. Have you ever been to the gym? And have you ever seen, like, like the, uh, my term right here, gym bros. You know what I'm talking about, the gym bros? The guys that it's like they live in the gym. These are the guys that they're kind of hoping to have their neck disappear because their muscles are, are they're just so big, right? You, know, you guys know those guys. I mean, they're, they're impressive guys, right? They're impressive guys. And some of you guys, I know this is kind of how you've lived before. I've heard your stories. But have you ever seen when these guys, when they're working out together and someone's about to lift like, like maybe their, their, their highest amount, their largest amount of weight before? And so like, let's say one of them, they're going to go and they're going to do the bench press where, you know, you lay flat on your back and you got you to gotta press it up all the way. Well, when that happens, they have someone who is their spotter. And the spotter kind of stands over them and they're there to catch the bar and, and lift the weights up if, if the person lifting the weights has a problem. But if you ever listen to what happened in this moment, here's what you never hear. I've never heard this. I've never heard the spotter look at the person lifting and say something like, yeah, you're terrible. You're, you're weak. I've never heard them say, you can't do this. Oh, no, no way. Nope, nope, you, you're terrible. What do you hear instead? In that moment, you hear the spotter, and it's like the spotter thinks that their words can literally meld with the fibers of muscles in the person lifting and make that person stronger. How do they sound? They say, you got this. You can do it. Come on. Lift. Lift. Push. Anybody heard it like that? Okay. Okay. Because they are doing everything they can 
to, to aid the person lifting. They're doing everything they can. The, the, the spotter is striving in a very real sense to strengthen, even if it's just emotionally, to strengthen the person lifting the weights. Now, I share that story with you because I want to inspire you to go to the gym this week. No, no, no. I share that story with you because I think that what we see happening in these five verses in 1 Thessalonians 3, we see that Paul is doing the exact same thing, not in terms of weightlifting, but in terms of the Christian life. And actually what we see is a description of how believers, how you and I, those in Christ, how we are to strive to strengthen each other. In fact, what you're going to see today is we we must strive to strengthen each other. You want to know why? Because I imagine if I were to go through this room and if I were to ask you one-on-one, hey, are you facing anything really difficult in your life? I imagine by the time I got through, I would have a list longer than I would have time to explain it. Because we all tend to have things that we're struggling with difficulties, challenges, trials, and tribulations. I imagine if I were to sit down one-on-one with each person in this room and you were willing to be honest with me, and I say, what are you being tempted with? How is, how is Satan tempting you? I imagine I would have a list of equal length that if we're honest, we're saying we are facing temptation. And so because, because all of us face affliction and difficulty. And because all of us face temptation, that means we as a church, we must strive to strengthen each other. That's what we see as we open up this passage. Here's, let me give you a preview. Here's what we're going to do today as we look at what Paul does in these five verses. Paul here in these five verses, he's actually going to show us what strengthening is meant to look like, how we are to strengthen one another. And then Paul is going to identify two groups of people that need to be strengthened more than others. Not to say that everyone doesn't need strengthening, but two groups of people that need strengthening most desperately. And so with that said, would you open up your Bibles with me or, or turn on your screens and find 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And let's begin with the first way that Paul shows us how to strengthen each other. And, and, and here's where it starts. We strive sacrificially to strengthen each other. Let me put it a different way. When, when you aim to strengthen someone else in the faith— It's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you your comfort. It's going to cost you your time. It's going to cost you your preferences. It's going to cost you your resources. Let me show you what I mean. Chapter 3, verses 1, and then part of verse 2. Here is what Paul says as he's writing to this church, this group of people that he misses. He says, Therefore, when, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy. Here's what Paul says. Paul says that he was willing to be separated from a loved one for the purpose of strengthening others in faith. Let me just jump into the 21st century. Here's what we learn. We learn that we may, we may end up doing the same thing. We may separate from loved ones if it means we're going to strengthen each other in our faith. Let me, let me show you what I mean. 
Paul says these words, he says, when we could bear it no longer, Paul is saying, when I could no longer handle being without any information about how the Thessalon- those in Thessalonica were doing, when I could bear it no longer, I made a decision. Now, back up. We, we have talked about Acts 17 just about every week. Acts 17 is a story of when Paul goes to Thessalonica, when he, for three weeks, when he reasons and when he proves and, and when he explains the gospel of Jesus. Let, let, me, let me just remind us of that story. In, in case you haven't been here, in case you forgot. Paul goes to Thessalonica and he sets up shop every Sabbath for three Sabbaths in the synagogue of the Jews. Every week he gathers together and he opens up the Old Testament scripture and from the Old Testament scripture he points at Jesus. From the Old Testament scripture he proves to these people that the Messiah, that the Savior, that the one that they need more than anything or anyone else It's Jesus. He explains to them about Jesus' death to pay the price for their sins. He explains to them about Jesus' resurrection so that by faith in Christ, they can have new life. And a wonderful thing happens. Some were convinced. Jews, Greeks, men, women, multiple people, they were convinced. They put their faith in Jesus. But then then a hard thing happens. The Jewish leaders of that day, they became jealous. And they riled up a mob, and they went searching for Paul and Paul's partner in ministry at this point, Silas. They went searching for these guys because they wanted to drag them out into the mob, and they wanted to beat them down is really what happened. They couldn't find Paul and Silas. And so what the new believers did is they sent Paul and Silas away. They sent them to Berea, And then after Berea, then Paul went to Athens. And then Paul, when he is in Athens, Paul actually called Silas and Timothy who were in Berea. He called them to come meet with him in Athens. And and while Paul is in Athens, I want you to imagine his state of mind. Paul just started a church. In his time in Thessalonica, he grew to love those people dearly. Chapter 2, he describes this love. He says he cared for them like a, like a mother with a child. He said that he shared not only the gospel, but his very life. He said that he was like a father in the way he exhorted and charged and encouraged these believers. Paul loved them. And then like that, Paul had to, he had to leave them. And so now Paul is separated from them. And Paul's thoughts, you can almost imagine the thoughts going through his mind. Did I share everything I needed to? Did I explain things clearly enough? What if, what if someone comes in after me and they start explaining things in a different way that's incorrect? Paul is concerned for these brand new fledgling believers who are potentially very weak in the faith. So you can imagine these thoughts and he says, when I could bear it no longer, I was willing the term there actually is, I decided, I decided to be left alone in Athens and I sent Timothy. Now you might be asking, okay, what's the big deal? So you sent Timothy. You know what kind of relationship Paul had with Timothy? Paul describes his relationship with Timothy. He calls Timothy his true son in the faith. 
Paul loved Timothy. Paul invested in Timothy. I, I imagine Paul, probably more than anyone else, had Timothy at the top of his list of people that he wanted to serve side by side with. He loved working with them. I mean, I think about Valley. I think about Andrew and Stephen, how fun it is, how much joy it is to serve the Lord together. You know, I actually, I think about my son, Jaden. He's 14, and I, I love doing just about anything with Jaden. Whether we're watching a movie, throwing the baseball, or, or even doing chores in the yard, the fact that we're doing things together, it, that's my ideal. That was Paul's ideal with serving with Timothy. And he says these words, I was willing to be left alone. That term, actually, it's the idea of being bereaved like an orphan. Not an orphan as a child, but Paul's, he's actually considering himself an orphan as an adult, which is weird in our mind, but it was a natural in the Greek mind. He says, I, I was willing to separate from someone I love. Why was he willing to do this? The, the reason is simple. Because for Paul, the purpose of God far outweighed his preferences. I mean, just think about it for a minute. We all have been given the purpose of the gospel. We've been given the purpose of strengthening each other. I, I think we'll prove that by the end of this morning. We've been given the purpose of sharing the gospel with those who have yet to hear about Jesus and his grace and his truth. We've been given these, these incredible purposes that are meant to last for all eternity, and, and yet... We all have our preferences, don't we? I mean, I could, I, could, I could draw up my preferences of exactly how I would want life to go. And you know what it would look like? I would have all the people I love the most doing everything possible with me. And I would be doing it at the places that I love to be the most. And I would be doing it with all of the kind of comforts and all of my preferences alongside of me. But, but for Paul, Paul said, I'm going to take that list of preferences and I'm going to put it on a scale and then I'm going to put the purposes that God has for my life on the other side of that scale. And for him, there was no argument. The purposes of God far outweighed Paul's desire to have his preferences in life. And so Paul was willing to separate from a loved one. He was willing to sacrifice. He was willing to send Timothy and be left alone in Athens. Now, that makes us say, okay, if, if I'm going to sacrifice, how do I sacrifice? Do I sacrifice just based on my feelings? Now, I think Paul, the reason he was so willing to sacrifice is because he had convictions that were rooted in the truth of God's word. The same is true for you and I. If you say, okay, what does it look like for me to sacrifice so that I can strengthen other people? Well, to do that, that means it begins by having your convictions rooted in God's word. In fact, we sacrifice based upon our convictions, not our feelings. I mean, left to yourself and your own feelings. If you make every decision based on the feelings of what you want to do, you will end up living a very self-focused life. A self-focused life will keep you from serving at things like VBS or on, on a mission trip going to, to Texas. A, a self-focused life will keep you from, from sharing the gospel with other people because you know what? You don't want to get into the conversation or the debate or you don't want to spend the time or you've got other things you need to do. A self-focused life will keep you from investing your resources, even financially, in, in the mission and the things of God. But, but how, do you, how do you check your feelings? 
What do you weigh your feelings against? I, I believe that we weigh them against the convictions that come out of God's word. And I think there are two convictions that Paul, he seemed to build his ministry on. There are two convictions that, that not only Paul, but the scripture describes over and over again that propel us toward missions and, and, and purpose, a purpose that outweighs our preferences. I want to ask you to consider these two convictions for just a moment. Here's the first one. The first biblical conviction that draws us to sacrifice rather than living in our preferences is this. The conviction that's the truth that there is an eternal heaven and an eternal hell. I recognize this is not a popular topic for our culture. I recognize this is the kind of thing that most people would rather sweep under the rug and ignore. But Paul was driven by this. Jesus himself, he talked about this reality more than many other topics. The reality of an eternal heaven and an eternal hell. This is what that means. That means all of humanity, every single one of us, we are going to come to the spot where we breathe our very last breath here on earth, and then we are going to head into our eternity, and that eternity is one of two destinations. One of those destinations, it's the eternal heaven where you will be in the presence of God forever, and because you're in the presence of God forever, you will have an eternity that is forever characterized by love love and by joy you will be full of peace you will be in the presence of the glory of god this is a majestic reality to imagine this is what's waiting for those who are in christ but there's that other eternal destination as well this eternal destination that jesus described as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is an eternal destination that the book of Revelation describes as, as a lake of fire that burns forever. This is a place of torment and despair. You want to know why? Because it is completely and utterly separated from the presence of God. There's no goodness there because there's no God there. There's no love there because there's no God there. There's no peace there because there's no God there. And it is forever. This is the first conviction I want you to consider. Here's the second. The second conviction is that faith in Jesus is the only way to be rescued from that eternal hell, and delivered safely into that eternal heaven. Faith that Jesus is the sinless, perfect Son of God. Faith that Jesus, he came and he lived a perfect life and then he willingly chose to go and die on that cross and through his death, he took all of your sin and all of your punishment and all of the consequence for your wicked heart. He took all of that that should cause you to spend eternity in hell. He took all of that onto the cross and he paid the price for it completely. He was buried and on the third day resurrected so that everyone who believes in him, they will have eternal life in heaven. You know, Jesus, he believed in this conviction. Jesus said things like, I am the way, the truth, 
and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, I, I want you to take these two convictions and I want you to hold them with both hands for just a moment because the moment you hold tightly to these convictions, it changes everything about the way you think and about the way you live. I'll be honest, there are days where I go through my life and my interactions with people, my conversations with people, the, the way I approach the tasks, I don't have these convictions at the front of my mind. Maybe I'm busy, maybe I'm overwhelmed, maybe I'm stressed. For whatever reason it is, I, I don't go through the, the, my day thinking about these things. And so you know what? My interactions can be kind of selfish and somewhat shallow. I can be more concerned with what I need to do next than the reality of the soul that is standing in front of me in a conversation. In those moments, I, I, I don't hold on to these convictions, but in those days when I do, everything changes. Instead of being concerned that I gotta go mow the lawn, I'm now concerned with the eternal destination of the person that's standing before me and whether or not they have truly placed their faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior. When you hold on to these convictions, it fights against your feelings. When you hold on to these convictions, it fights against you living a life that says, I just want to do the things that I prefer to do. And when you hold on to these convictions, it makes it so that you can strive sacrificially to serve other people. This is the first way. The first way we strive to strengthen each other is we do so sacrificially. It will cost you something. But, but let me show you the second way. Not only do we strive sacrificially, but we strive spiritually. We strive spiritually to strengthen each other. Let me show you what I mean. Pick back up. I'm gonna go right back to verse one. I'm gonna read verse one and then further into verse two. Here's what Paul writes now. He says, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. Here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that this strengthening is rooted in the gospel. But Paul says, first of all, he says, I want, to, I want to, Timothy to establish you. That word, establish, it actually can mean strengthen. It's the idea of keeping something firm or making something solid. This is the purpose clause of these five verses. Paul says, I sent Timothy for one purpose, to strengthen you. To strengthen you. This is kind of the idea of, of if you were to build your own house, and one day you went out and you, you poured a concrete foundation, Right? That, pour, that, that poured concrete, it takes a little bit of time to dry, right? Who here would pour their concrete foundation and knowing it's going to take days to dry would an hour later go and start building on that foundation? Anyone do that? It would be a disaster. It would, it would be a, a terrible disaster. But, but connect the dots. This is what's going on in Paul's mind. Paul went to Thessalonica. He shared the gospel. These people raised their hand. They said, yes, I believe in Jesus. I am persuaded and I am convinced of Jesus. And then Paul had to flee and the foundation hadn't dried yet. He poured the concrete, but it was not firm yet. Paul was worried that these people, that they would start to wonder, well, maybe Jesus isn't the only way. Remember, some of them were Greek. 
Maybe some of these Greek brand new believers will say, well, you know what? Jesus, he's just one of, of the many pagan gods that exist in our pantheon. And some of these, they were Jewish. Maybe some of these brand new Jewish believers who did not have their foundation solidified yet, maybe they would start to think, well, you know what? Jesus is, is part of my Jewish faith, but I still have to obey all of the laws if I'm going to go to heaven, if I'm going to be approved by God. And so Paul, he's worried that they have a foundation that is not yet firm. And so he sends Timothy. Look at how he describes Timothy. He says, Timothy, our brother, and check this out. This is an incredible description. God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. What, what, a, what a title. <laughs> Paul doesn't say my co-worker in the gospel of Christ. Paul, Paul doesn't say a co-worker. He says, I'm sending Timothy, God's co-worker. But look at the focus in the gospel of Christ. Timothy was to go there, and he was to strengthen them in the gospel. Timothy didn't go there to hit the gym with these believers. Timothy didn't go there to show these believers, hey, here's a new way to handle your agricultural needs. Timothy didn't go there to advise them on how to construct a house. Timothy didn't go there because they couldn't figure out how to work their iPhone, and they needed a young guy to do it for them. You know what I mean? Timothy went there to strengthen them in a way that was rooted in the good news. That's what gospel is. In the message of Jesus and his death and his resurrection, Paul sends Timothy, God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. See, strengthening, it is rooted in the gospel. But then how does it take place? Strengthening then grows through encouragement. Strengthening grows through encouragement. Paul says that Timothy is to go and he is to establish or strengthen, establish and exhort. This word exhort is to instill into someone courage and cheer. The word exhort means to build someone up in a way, but, but, but it's interesting. It actually, the way the word exhort works, it's, it means actually to come alongside someone so that they will have courage and so that they will have cheer. It, it's kind of the image of a dad standing in the back of a garage and watching his, his teenage son in the front of the garage trying to repair his bicycle. And maybe the son doesn't know dad's there. And so the son is up there and he's got his tools, his, his wrenches, and, and he's working hard. And, and you see the son's just kind of starting to get frustrated. It's not quite working. And dad's back there and dad knows exactly what to do, right? He can fix it in a matter of moments. And so as dad watches the teenage son, and the teenage son is, is obviously not able to do it, dad doesn't yell from the back of the garage, hey, I've told you a hundred times how to do it right. Why don't you just fix it the right way? No, you know what dad does? Dad exhorts. Dad encourages. Dad comes alongside. It's a picture of coming down on his knee. Hey, let me show you. Let's do this together. You hold right there. I'll tighten right there. Okay, now I'll hold right here, and you grab that wrench, and you, you put it right here. Okay, twist the other way. There you go, just like that. Okay, here, we've got it. This is how strengthening happens. See, strengthening happens not by scolding, but by supporting. Timothy was to go and support them, not scold them. T Timothy wasn't to go there and, and yell at them and, and, and critique them. Timothy was to go there and encourage them. 
I can't tell you how many guys and, and even women that I've talked to that growing up, mom or dad's voice was a voice of something like, what are you new? What are you stupid? What, why can't you do that right? That doesn't strengthen anyone. The, to, to strengthen someone means you support them, not scold them. This means the strengthening happens not through guilt, but through grace. This is what it looks like in the church. When we sin, which we do, we don't look at each other and say, you failure, you, you're so messed up, you're so filthy, you're so rotten. You know what we do instead? We say, you know what? No matter how much you've messed up, you are still loved by the Savior. We say, you know that sin in your life? You realize that that has been forgiven because of Jesus' great love that he showed on the cross when he paid the price for it with his death? This is how strengthening happens. This is what it looks like for us not to be a gym bro, but to be a brother or sister in Christ when we look around at those and we say, how can I strengthen you do it through encouragement. But I want you to see the ultimate result as well. Because like we said earlier, Timothy did not go there to strengthen them in some sort of worldly pursuit. Here's how to build a house. Here's how to raise a garden. Here's how to tend your sheep. Timothy went there with a specific goal to strengthen them and exhort them in the faith. Strengthening impacts living in faith. Look at the end of verse 2. Paul says, to establish and exhort you in your faith. Faith here is the idea of the, the holistic Christian life. This, this is the idea that the entirety of a Christian's life is to be permeated with, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You, you realize that you are never called to say, this is my work life, and this is my family life, and this is my church life, and this is my fun life, and this is my hobby life, and this is my life with friends. That's never what you're called to. The, the Christian view of this is all of these get gathered together and you say, this is my life in the faith. This is Christ permeating all of my life. And this is what Timothy's goal was. Timothy's goal was to go to Thessalonica and help those believers see that Jesus is meant to be part of the entirety of everything they do. This is the same as true of you. And this is the same truth for the person sitting next to you that who knows what they're going through? Who knows what kind of affliction or suffering they're experiencing? Who knows what kind of temptation that they are battling against? You and I, we are called to strive to strengthen each other. That's Paul's point here. Applied generally, we do it to everyone but Paul actually, he doesn't just apply it generally. He, he zeroes in on two kinds of people that need to be strengthened more than anyone else. Let, let me show you. Oh, continue with me. The first group of people is that we strive to strengthen the afflicted. We strive to strengthen those who are facing tribulation or trial, those who are persecuted, those who are going through very difficult life circumstances. Let me show you verses three and four. He says that he, he, he sent Timothy to, to establish and exhort them in their faith. Verse three, 
that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. This word affliction means tribulation or trial. It's, it's probably specifically applied to those in Thessalonica because they were experiencing a tribulation because of their social and economic standing as Christians. I mean, remember, these were people that a few weeks before Paul was there, they were socially accepted and they were, they were economically, it was advantageous for them because they were part of whatever culture they were part of. But when, when the gospel was preached and when these people decided to trust Jesus, many times you, want, you know what would happen is socially they would be cut off. Last week they were friends with someone. This week they're a Christian and that person won't talk to them. And it wasn't just social. Last week, they could do business with someone, and this week, that person won't have anything to do with them. They can't buy and they can't sell. It, it impacted them socially and economically. This was, this was real hardship for them. This was a real difficulty. In fact, Paul's concern, he says, verse 3, he says, that no one be moved. He says that no one be disturbed or no one be shaken, that no one be deceived or no one be seduced. That word moved, it's an interesting word. It only appears here in the Greek New Testament, but in other Greek writing, this is the word that is used to describe, get this, the wagging of a dog's tail. Anyone have a dog? Right? We've got a black lab with a big, thick, long tail that it has no control over that thing whatsoever, Right? If you're standing in the vicinity of that tail and that dog's excited, you're going to get whacked. You're going to know it. The dog's going to be clueless. The, the dog has no control over it. That's the idea here of someone who is moved by their affliction. It is someone who is so unstable in their faith, someone who is yet to be established in their faith that they're easily moved by the difficulties of life. This was Paul's concern because, because Paul understood that affliction can do one or two things in a person's life. Affliction can either move people away from Christ or affliction can move people toward Christ. You've probably seen this in people's lives, haven't you? Well, let's start with that first item. Affliction can move people away from Christ. When life gets hard, especially if life gets hard because they're in Christ, this is the picture of someone who grows up in the church, but then they start building friends, and those friends don't believe in Jesus and don't want anything to do with Jesus, whether they're a teenager or an adult. And because people around them don't want Jesus, it causes them affliction. It causes them trouble. And so they begin to distance themselves away from Jesus so they don't have to take the heat of being a Christian. Jesus actually talked about this. Matthew 13, Jesus, he tells a parable. He tells a story. The story is of the sower. He says the sower goes out into his field and he starts to scatter his seed. He throws a seed. Says some of the seed falls along the path and, and the devil comes and just swoops it up and eats it up. But then he says some of the seed, it falls on the rocky soil. This is the shallow soil. It's got topsoil and then under it is rock. 
He says this seed, it begins to grow at first, but it has no room for roots to grow down. And so when the sun comes out and beats down upon that plant, the plant withers because it has no roots. And then Jesus explains that he's not talking about seeds. Matthew 13, verses 20 and 21, look with me. Jesus says, For what was sown on the rocky ground... This is the one who hears the word, the gospel, and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on the account of the word, immediately he falls away. These are Jesus' words. But this is Paul's concern. Paul's concern is he preached the gospel in Thessalonica. He had to hightail it out of there to Berea. And those believers, the the gospel, the word was planted, and their soil was only this thick. And because they were going to face persecution, their faith would wither. See, some people, affliction, it drives them away from God. But others, others, when they face affliction, affliction actually moves them toward Christ. Affliction can move you away from Christ, but affliction can also move you toward Christ. This is part of Paul's point. When Paul writes, he says, for you yourselves know that we were destined for this, destined for affliction. He says, when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass, and now you know. See, Paul recognized that it would make it hard on these new believers' lives if they actually followed Jesus. And so he told them. He said, it's going to cost you. It's going to be difficult. People will look down on you. Your friends will turn their back on you. Your business might not have what you want it to have because of this. But because he told them that, they were ready for it. And what we're going to see next week is actually their faith was strengthened in their affliction. Instead of running from God, you know what they did? They ran to God. And they found that God's promises are always true. That he would meet them right in their need. That's the truth for you as well. If you face persecution because you are a believer in Christ and your family is not, if you face persecution because you are a believer in Christ and you're honest and open about it in the workplace and others are not, guess what? Instead of pushing away from Christ, this can actually make you so strong in your faith because you have nothing else to hold on to but Jesus. So, so the point here then is that we, we must strive to strengthen, especially those who are afflicted especially those who have difficulty in their life. But Paul doesn't just talk about those who are afflicted. He actually aims this strengthening at one other kind of person. Not only do we strive to strengthen the afflicted, we strive to strengthen the tempted. Look with me at verse 5. For this reason... When I could bear it no longer, this is the same language he used in verse 1. This is his heart being poured out on the page. When I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Again, for this reason, Paul has great concern because he's separated from those in Thessalonica. And so he's concerned that they would be tempted by the tempter. His concern here is that they would be tempted to abandon their faith. 
You know, this actually, this takes us right back to Matthew 13. The, the third kind of soil that Jesus talks about, he talks about the path, he talks about the shallow soil, and then he talks about how the sower goes and he throws some of the seed, and some of the seed, it lands in the thorny soil, where there are thorny weeds. And, and those plants, they start to grow, but because they grow, the, the thorny weeds come and they, they wrap around them and they suck all the life out of them. And then Jesus says, I'm not talking about seeds, I'm talking about people. Matthew 13 again, verse 22. Jesus' words, he says, For what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Again, this, these are Jesus' words. But this is Paul's concern. Paul's concern is that these young Christians would be tempted away from following Christ, and he says our labor would be in vain. It would be empty. He said, all of the work we did those three plus weeks when we showed you so much love, where we cared for you so deeply, where you trusted in the gospel, and then you were tempted away from it. You wander away from the faith. See, this reminds us what Paul knew. Paul knew that Satan would come and he would tempt them at their moment of weakness and their moment of vulnerability. You know what this reminds us? This reminds us that the tempter aggressively aims to destroy your faith. You know, Satan, he's not trying to make a deal with you. Satan doesn't want, he doesn't want like partial victory. He wants to destroy your faith. Peter writes about this. 1 Peter chapter 5, look at verse eight and nine, verses 8 and 9. Peter describes the enemy in his, in his scheming, in his attack against you. Here's what he says. He says, be sober-minded, think clearly. Be watchful, be aware of your surroundings. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. He says, firm or establish or strong in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Satan, he's described as a, as a roaring lion, who prowls around. This means that Satan is strategically and tactfully looking who is vulnerable, who is weak, who can I come and devour like a lion. He, he's aiming at this. He wants to destroy your faith, and he does this with temptation because every temptation is a lure to abandon the faith. If Satan can tempt you away from God, he can tempt you away from your relationship with God, and he can tempt you away from your purposes in God. I mean, we can take a big, a big sin, a big temptation, but let's just take a little one for a moment. Uh, imagine the, the temptation of just telling a, a, a lie. I mean, if you're faced with a moment where you have to tell the truth or a lie, and you know life will be so much easier if you just lie, right? It's not a big lie. It's just, you know, it's just a little deal. It's just a little itty-weeny, teeny tiny lie. In that moment, you know what Satan's aim is? He's aiming that you take that moment where you say that one lie, and he lures you one step away. And then what happens the next day? It's a little easier. And then a little easier. 
and then a little easier, and so on and so forth. And day by day, it doesn't seem like you're really far away, but you do that over a year, and you look back and you realize how far away he has tempted you and lured you away from your faith. This is his aim. This is his goal. He wants to draw you away little by little. In fact, Paul writes about this in 1 Timothy, a letter to Timothy, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Listen to this. This is, this is such an important verse to understand about the way sin works in our lives. Paul writes, For the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of of demons. This is teachings that are against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 2. Through insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Look at those last few lines. Consciences are seared. Here's what it's talking about. You ever taken a steak and you seared it on one side, flipped it over, seared it on the other side, locked all the juices inside of it, right? That's, a, that's one way to go about cooking your steak. But here's what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about taking your conscience and putting it against a hot iron and it becomes seared. And then you do that again. And then you do that again. And then you do that again. And so no longer do you have a nice juicy steak. You actually have what's more like a piece of charcoal that you can't even get your teeth through because it's been seared over and over and over again so that you have no conscience left. So you, you have no awareness of the sinfulness of sin. This is actually a popular conversation in our world today. There, there's this term that's become really popular right now. It's called deconstructing your faith. Maybe you've heard it. In the last few years, there's been Christian authors and Christian musicians and Christian pastors even that they've come to this spot where they say, you know what, I've deconstructed my faith. But you know what they're really saying is I've decided that I want to do things that God tells me not to do. And so in that, I've seared my conscience over and over and over again. And now I'm at the spot where I don't even think Jesus is real. This was Paul's concern. If I'm honest... This is my concern for you. This is our concern when people are caught in temptation, that they get caught in temptation and they get seared and seared and seared and seared until there's no faith left. This means that you and I, listen very carefully, we must strive to strengthen each other. Let me talk to the strong people in this room. Maybe you seem to be kind of strong in your faith. This isn't to say your life's perfect. This isn't to say you have no difficulties. And this is not to say that you have no temptation. But by and large, you are walking the path God has for you. If that's you, listen very carefully. You must strive to strengthen your brothers and sisters in Christ. What a tragedy it is for you to come with your strength, be fed with the word, and leave and not strengthen anyone else. What would it look like for you if you came here week after week and you had like a radar? Beep, 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 beep. Who can I encourage? Who can I build up? Who can I strengthen? Maybe someone, you, you start to interact with them. You say, hey, what's going on in your life? And you find out they're going through something difficult. And so you say, can I pray with you? One of my greatest joys as a pastor is to see other believers praying for one another after a service. I'll tell you what, I can fly after that. Because <laughs> I see you strengthening each other. 
Maybe you begin to build trust with someone and they become so trusting of you that they're willing to share, you know what, I'm really struggling with this temptation. You must strive to encourage and strengthen them. Let me talk to you if you're in this room and you are, you're dealing with difficulties. You've got health difficulties that are overwhelming and you don't know, you don't know how they're going to turn out. You've got financial difficulties that you're kind of wondering, how are things going to work? You have relational difficulties that have your heart just wrecked. If that's you, let me just appeal to you for a moment. We want to strengthen you, but we can't if you don't share. (laughs) If that's you, would you find someone that you trust or even someone that looks trustworthy in this room? And when you begin to just share a little bit of what's going on, and so maybe you'll find someone in time that is strong and they can begin to strengthen you. I'll say the same thing to the person who's tempted. If you're tempted week after week, you're struggling with temptation, maybe you're failing, maybe you're falling on your face, and you hate the fact that you're failing and falling on your face, but you're doing it alone. Listen very carefully. We have a church full of people that want nothing more than to strengthen you. Not to shame you, not to guilt you, but to encourage you and support you and come alongside you. Here's what I'm asking every person in this room or watching online. I'm asking for you, everyone, to confirm your faith. To confirm your faith. As someone who's strengthening someone else or as someone who is willing to trust someone else to be strengthened by them. That is That's the challenge. We must strive to strengthen each other. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for this incredible passage. We thank you for the, the way it describes Christian life at its best. Where brothers and sisters are willing to sacrifice, where brothers or sisters are, they're willing to strengthen one another no matter what is going on in our lives. And Father, I pray that your spirit would be working in those in this room who maybe are strong. I pray that you would be leading them to sacrifice their time, their their preferences, so that they can strengthen other people in the most meaningful way. They can strengthen others in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for those who are struggling, either with affliction or with temptation. Father, I pray that they would sense such a care by the other people in this church. I pray that there would be really this this sense of arms being wrapped around them in love and in concern in such a way that strengthens them in their difficulty and that strengthens them to withstand the temptation. Father, I pray that each of us would confirm our faith. And Lord, for anyone in this room or watching who is yet to trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus, Father, I pray that by your spirit, we beg that by your spirit, you would open up the eyes of their heart and they would see the great need they have for a savior. And they would see, see the great savior they have, they have in Jesus and his death and resurrection. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen. Amen. What, what a great truth today. What a great encouragement I hope you'll take my challenge. I hope that you will not rush out of here, but you'll linger on your way out. I hope there's a handful of incredibly meaningful conversations as we end today. Now, we are going to conclude with with one more song.
We're also gonna receive our offering, which you can turn in in the buckets in the front or in the back or even online. But, but I wanna conclude with one more prayer, and it's actually a prayer for a local mission. It's the mission that is called the Care and Pregnancy Center. If you've been with us for the last month on Mother's Day, we launched an initiative in, in conjunction with them to uh, hand out these baby bottles. There were a bunch of baby bottles in the back, and it was awesome. The very first day, they were gone. And, and what the initiative is, they're people, they took the baby bottles home, they're filling them with change or, or with 20s or whatever they want, and then they're going to bring them back. And, and next week, we're going to collect all of those baby bottles on Father's Day, and we're going to turn them back into the Care and Pregnancy Center. Now, if you don't know, this is a ministry. They serve young families, they serve moms, and they actually stand in the gap where sometimes a, 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 a pregnant woman might be considering ending the life of their child. They might be considering an abortion. In this ministry, they, they actually stand with these women so they don't do that. And so this child can have life. It's an incredible ministry. And so I want to encourage you, bring your baby bottles next week full of change, or you can even just bring a check for them, right? That's an easy way to support them. But I would also like us to pray for them today. And so will you stand with me one more time? Let's conclude our service with, with a prayer for care and pregnancy center, and then Stephen and his team will lead us in one final song. Let, let's pray together. Father, once again, we just thank you for for your word, for your spirit. We thank you for the, the church family and the way we get to strive to strengthen one another. Father, I pray that you would lead each of us in, in a specific way to, to strengthen one another or to be strengthened by someone else. And Lord, we also, we lift up this incredible ministry here in Longview, the Karen Pregnancy Center. Father, we pray that you would continue to bless them so that every financial need they have would be met by the giving of your people. God, we pray that through their ministry, lives would be changed. We pray that through their ministry, lives would be saved. And we thank you for the ways that is already happening. And Father, as we give toward them, I pray you would even move our hearts to maybe even give ourselves as, as volunteers, as servants of that ministry. And as we do that, we pray that you are seen as glorious and as amazing because you are. And once again, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's lift our voices one more time.